Alright, so welcome back to Liberty Talks. Alright, so let's just jump right back in. Uh, I want to get into foreign policy, because I think this is where our biggest disagreements might be. This is where me and Michael's biggest disagreements are, and generally where I find most of my biggest agreements with libertarians, because I kind of have an unorthodox libertarian view on this. And so when it comes to foreign policy, I get called a neocon all the time, because I that's what I get called. Yeah. I, I, I support military action sometimes. But it's fine. I I want Twitter even put not a neocon. <laughs> so, uh, but here's one thing that I think libertarians are a little bit inconsistent on, which I'm the only one who thinks this probably. But I, I think it's a good point. So when it comes to military action around the world, what I hear a lot is I hear the Ron Paul stance. Why are we in these endless wars? Why do we have our military in the Middle East? Why do we have these our military in these countries that hate us? Blah blah blah. Okay. Here's the way I view it. I would say to be a good libertarian, you have to believe in free markets, right? Right. Now, what I hear the most right now is people are saying, why are we antagonizing Iran? Why do we have military bases around Iran in the Middle East? Uh, why do we have our ships in the Persian Gulf? The way I see it is, uh, Iran has been attacking oil facilities. They, they attacked the Saudi oil facility, which like really put a dent in the oil market. They've been bombing oil tankers in the Persian Gulf, which 90% of the world's oil goes through there. Mm -hmm. They have been actively doing what they can to disrupt the market. So just from an economic perspective and not a foreign policy or geopolitical mm -hmm. perspective, I, I say that libertarians should actually be pro-interventionism in the Middle East and in Iran because this country is actually trying to reduce the market and destroy uh, or, or try to hurt the, the U.S. and the West as much as they can by attacking oil tankers and all of that, by actively disrupting and hurting the market. And if this is true and we were to just leave, then that would give Iran full reign over the oil oil market and prices and all of this. And that no longer is a free market. This is a market controlled by a rogue terrorist nation. Mm. And if you're truly libertarian and truly believe in markets, you should believe in protecting those markets even abroad. Mm. So well, I want to hear your point of view on well, that. Well, I think uh, like the freedom of navigation is important. So that's kind of the big government policy that we have that executed by the Navy which just so happens to be the largest single consumer of oil in the world. The Navy? The Navy, the United States Navy. So that uh, kind of ties into what I feel is the real heart of the foreign policy matters, what, what is our energy policy. Um, can you contain Iran? Maybe. We've been doing that effectively, I think, for the last 20 or 30 years. But it comes at a cost, and the market disruptions that... Not only them, but the Saudis play into the, to, to the market mean that it's not a fair game. It's not a free market. Um, to what extent can we sustainably be involved? I don't know if Iran is a strong enough player to even be on the level of the United States. Um, even the Soviet Union, to a lesser extent, really can't compete with us. So I think we have to have a very nuanced approach to Iran and dealing with these countries because we still depend heavily on Saudi oil. So we do have to maintain those uh, navigable pathways, but I just, here's the thing about foreign policy. I always feel like I'm dealing with imperfect information. Yeah. Like if I knew all the information, I could say with a high degree of certainty of what I think, but recognizing that one, my government lies to me, and that two, that, you know, there are things that don't come out to the public for security reasons. It's hard for me to say, but I do think that it's fine for the United States Navy to protect the nav well, the navigation ways through the Straits of Hormuz. That's very important. I don't know 
what we stand to gain by antagonizing Iran. I think we can contain them. I think we've actually used a lot of their operatives of fighting uh, ISIS inside of Iraq. So this is kind of where like our interests become to, become so convoluted and overlap, we forget whose side we're on. I think it creates problems because then we don't have an exit strategy, or at least a sustainable strategy, you know. Um, and my concern is again, you know, it's it's the biggest part of our spending is overseas. So if we really cared about democracy and we really cared about, you know, the Republican ideals, we should be in countries that have despots, have tyrants. Those countries need our help. Instead, we're in countries that are oil rich. So to me, it's it's never about democracy. It's about maintaining and securing our oil resources. So let's just have that conversation instead of calling it something else, you know, spreading in our values or our freedoms are over there. They're not over there and they're a completely different culture. I think it's kind of fruitless to try to, you know, impose the idea that they want free elections and democracy. I'm like, it's not in their culture, as you could probably agree. It's okay. not. I would disagree. You think democracy is in their culture? Yeah, so one of the interesting, interesting things is, uh, so uh, before the Shah came to power, mm -hmm. uh, you had Mossadegh, who was running the country. Mm -hmm. He was democratically elected, mm -hmm. and he was going to nationalize the oil industry of mm -hmm. Iran, which eventually led to him being overthrown by Reza Shah with the help of CIA and MI6. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Reza Shah. Uh, he's the Shah. His name's Reza Khan. I don't know why I call him Reza Shah. Uh, uh, and so, and so the Shah overthrows him and, and puts in these, this Westernization process in Iran, and this is opposed by the radical, uh, by the radical sects of Iran and by the Ayatollah and the uh, the high highest parts of the the, Shi the Shiites. Mm -hmm. And so this leads the Ayatollah to come back and create the Islamic Revolution of I believe 1979, mm -hmm. and. Here's the interesting thing. Uh, most Iranians supported the Islamic re Revolution against uh, the, the Shah. But what's interesting is most people don't realize a lot of those people who supported the Islamic Revolution against the Shah didn't know they were going to get a dictator of the Ayatollah in his place. And they thought they were actually returning back to democracy mm -hmm. back to the Mossadegh days. And instead they got the dictator of Ayatollah Khomeini, which is now why today what I've been told by a lot of my Iranian friends, people who've been there, mm -hmm. that the actual culture of Iran, like the environment, the feeling right now, is at the same level as it was pre-Islamic Revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I empathize for the uh, for the Persian people, the Iranians, because I think their government is a big problem. But I think the Persian people actually are stand-up people, mm -hmm. and they're I beautiful agree. people. And mm -hmm. you know, and it's sad that they are having to fight this battle. Mm -hmm. You know, what role can we play in it? I mean, what I, do you think? Well, I would say we should be doing covert operations in Iran. We should be giving weapons to potential rebel groups mm -hmm. there. Uh, and also we should be taking out the terror networks across the Middle East because what Iran has been trying to do forever is to create these terror networks and sales across the Middle East so it can uh, further Iran in expansion and so they can take control of this region. They want to be the dominant regional power here. And so they have all these groups like, uh, uh, like Hezbollah, uh, Khatib Hezbollah, Hamas, mm -hmm. and in all these areas which they're using as proxies to forward their goals. So we should be taking those out. I agree with Trump that we should be taking out their generals. I think taking out Soleimani was a very good thing, mm -hmm. especially when he was in Iraq planning a siege against the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. Uh, yeah, he, did, he definitely should have been taken out. He's, mm -hmm. the, he's killed more Americans than probably any other terrorist in the world. Mm -hmm. And so we should be doing everything we can to contain Iraq. Uh, uh, right now, I'm at the point that short of military invasion, short of boots on the ground, we should definitely have drones in the air. We should definitely have our navy out in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. We should um, 
and we should be taking out these terror cells, and we should be working with Israel to do it, because Israel wants to do it. And the, pos the chance of a wider war breaking out if we don't do it, I think is almost guaranteed. Yeah, it's, um, it's very layered. I think your approach would be very proactive, and I can see why some people think, all right, this is a very neoconservative point of view. But, I mean, you're trying to strike at the heart of the matter. You're not trying to be reactionary, which a lot of people that argue for more aggressive foreign policy agree with. Um, the covert operations, I prefer those operations, the full-scale boots on the ground. I think we have to operate on sound intelligence. Um, but I don't see how we can actually maintain a nation. So we took over Iraq effectively, but now we've been booted out of Iraq. Mm -hmm. What did we get in return for that now? Because after 20 plus years of warfare, I mean, I don't know if we built the relationships there that can actually counteract the Iranian effect on in that region. And you know, not, not to mention, you know, Afghanistan, I mean, I think that's been an abject failure. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to see a solution. At, you know, this is why I think my major concern with our foreign policy is that it's not being directed through Congress. It's being directed through the executive. Yeah, that's, that's a big problem. So if we actually put our heads together and decided on a plan, well, at least we said, hey, we voted on it. And this is what we're going to do moving forward. But, you know, just waging war in these countries and not having a clear exit, uh, it's mission creep. So. so depending on the country, I'm usually I'm sometimes critical of the idea of an exit plan, mm -hmm. just because it does take a long time to do some things that you want to do. So I think one of the problems the U.S. has today, really the American people, is we've lost our stomach for uh, a full-blown conflict that we need to stick to. Ever since Vietnam, mm -hmm. and really since Korea, we, yeah. we've lost our stomach to do that. And then that's just something the American people are going to have to grapple with, especially when I remain a world power and take on communist China in the future. Americans are going to have to uh, learn to stick it out. Uh, and what I mean by this in the Middle East is we never should have left Iraq because Iraq was incomplete. We had not finished our work there. I don't, I don't believe in democratizing them and nation building. I uh, Leave that to the people. They know best what government's best for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, like we've said before, Western values, Western ideas don't work everywhere else. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that's completely true. But we should de we definitely need to be in these places, I think. And when we say that Iraq was a failure, Iraq is only a failure because we didn't have the stomach to follow it through. We didn't have the stomach to stay there. And that's what we had to do. We had to stay there. Uh, take Japan, for example. After World War II, Japan was not a Western country in any measure. Today, is it, a West it is a Western country. We still have troops there today. And the reason it's a Western country is because the United States did help the Japanese Guide, uh, we, we guided them to that path of westernization and now the Japanese people are better off for it and they even agree they're better off for it mm -hmm. and we do have to do that with some people in Iraq now when it comes to your other question what did we gain from Iraq well we, we gained a couple of things we do have allies in Iraq uh, you talk about Iraq just booted us out uh, it's, are you talking about the recent vote they just had mm -hmm. okay so the thing about that vote is one uh, Iraqi Congress or Parliament, I think, does not actually have the power to even do that. Only the executive cabinet has the power to do that. Mm. And second, the only people that voted for was the Iraqi Shiites. Mm. The Sunnis and the Kurds actually boycotted the vote because they disagreed with it. Mm. And those were our allies in Iraq, is the Sunnis and the Kurds. They're fighting against the Shias, and the Shias there are fighting for Iran. And the Shias in the majority, correct? 
the no the Shias are the, the minority. They're about forty percent, and Sunnis are about sixty percent. Okay. The biggest minority is the Kurds, mm -hmm. and and this is actually what the Middle East is turning into now. It's it is becoming a lot more black and white in the Middle East because every battle is turning into a battle of uh, of Iran versus non-Iranian proxy. It, that really is how, how it is everywhere. So, for example, in Israel, Israel is on the verge of going to war in Gaza and Lebanon right now. Mm -hmm. Both of these countries, uh, well, Gaza is not a country, but Hamas is controlled by Iran. In Lebanon, Lebanon is controlled by Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a affiliate of, of Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, they're fighting against Yemen. Uh, the... the the groups they're fighting against in Yemen are affiliates of Iran. They are proxies. So nearly all conflicts in the Middle East are are breaking down between uh, fighting against Iran and its proxies. Mm -hmm. And those people who are not Iran and its proxies are generally siding with the U.S. now. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think the sanctions have been effective in Iran? Yeah, they, they, yeah they've been very effective. Um, they've, Iran's actually had to stop funding a lot of their terror groups because they're completely running out of money. One of the things that's led to the great protests we've been seeing in the past couple mm -hmm. of months is the sanctions, because I mean, people can't do anything anymore. Mm -hmm. And Iran's only made the problem worse, because since there's no sanctions, since unrest is uh, growing there, they've been doing things like turning off the internet and blocking what people can see, which is making more unrest. Mm -hmm. so, so it's kind of worked to destabilize. Yeah. Well, I agree with that. I mean, I, I just would like to see the people in Iran kind of take control of their country. It just doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. I, we've had so many Arab Springs, you yeah. know, and this, and they never seem to to come to the to the fulcrum point where they can actually leverage and oust the people that have been kind of leading the country into ruin. And that's one of my great critiques of Obama is he was not there to support them when they needed it. Mm -hmm. When the Iranian people rise up, which I think they eventually will if we keep giving them enough time. We need to be there to support them when they do. Uh, and the Iranians actually want American support. There was, there was a video going around a couple months ago of this university in Tehran, which has an American flag and an Israeli flag on the ground and the, at the front entrance, and the students were supposed to walk over it. Well, no student, or students are refusing to walk over it now. They won't do it. And the students who were walking over it were getting shouted at and shouted down, and people were like threatening to fight them. Really? Yeah, so there is a big change going on in Iran right now, and that's what we need to be helping. Well, I hope something like that, you know, can translate into other countries because, I mean, here in our neck of the woods with Venezuela, I mean, those people are desperately in need of mm -hmm. relief. But, you yeah. know, what's our strategy there? I mean, we can, it seems that the more we try to isolate Venezuela, the more they rely on China and the Soviet or the Russians. Yeah, and yeah. this is where we need to put more pressure on the Russians. Did you know that Maduro is actually going to, uh, was supposed to step down? Okay. So um, Maduro was supposed to step down. Yeah, so Maduro was supposed to step down, mm -hmm. and he was actually convinced by Vladimir Putin not to do it. And then Putin sent some Russian mercenaries over to Venezuela. So the problem in Venezuela is a broader problem taken on Russia and China. And I actually think this is a little bit easier than people are making it out to be. Uh, well, not that it's easy, but it's a little more simpler, because Russia actually is not doing well financially right mm -hmm. now. They, uh, the only thing that's keeping them afloat is through oil and mercenaries. And Trump's been done a good job of cutting off the oil, and we just, uh, I think last year we killed 50 Russian mercenaries at, in Iraq, or Syria. Or well, Syria, I think. Yeah, in yeah. Syria. So, Russia's definitely having trouble, and we should be putting more pressure on them. We should, I, when it comes to the Western Hemisphere, we need to stick with the Monroe Doctrine, saying, no, absolutely not. If you're not from the West, you stay out. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be enforced, and that hasn't really ever been enforced. Yeah. 
Well, you know, we couldn't keep Cuba contained after the fall of the Soviet Union. That was our first mistake. Yeah. Because so uh, Cuba really kind of like created this whole pathway for socialism to creep back into Latin America. Mm -hmm. and, and look what they've done. They've turned to a pro uh, prosperous country like Venezuela into the poorest country in Latin America, arguably. Yeah. So Also the most resource-rich country in Latin America. Now they're eating dogs on the streets. Yeah. This is why we also need to facilitate our relationships with Brazil and, and people like Jair Bolsonaro, who mm -hmm. is actually a American conservative. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, a lot of libertarians in uh, Brazil were supporting him, mm -hmm. at least, you know, to the alternatives. Yeah. So, by and large, you know, it's kind of like how a libertarian might feel about Trump. It's like, okay, you may not like the guy personally, but he's done a lot of things that have moved the needle back towards mm -hmm. liberty. So mm -hmm. Brazil was in a really scary place. Now Argentina's in a really bad place. Yeah, definitely. Have you seen uh, their interest rates and how the banks keep, you know, devaluing their? Yeah, I've been hearing about it. It's yeah. it's, it's not looking good. Mm. But I, I am happy with CPAC. Uh, CPAC has been setting up in Brazil. Mm. And I think that's a really good thing. And really, Brazil is a really interesting country because the right in Brazil has really been moving towards Americanism. Yeah. And even like religion there. Mm. Uh, uh, you know the fastest growing religion in Brazil. It's the Pentecostal Church. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. I would have thought maybe the Mormon Church, but... Mormon Church is one of the fastest growing there, too. Yeah. Pentecostal and Mormons are really putting in work in Brazil. I mean, that's what it takes, and that's why it's all social conservatives. Like, if you want to make the change, like, go out there and evangelize people. Yeah. Like, it's you don't do it through decree, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, you do it through working and talking to people. So um, that, that's a good sign for those countries. And mm -hmm. in my dad's country of Colombia, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, uprisings from socialist regimes mm -hmm. that are kind of stemming from Cuba through Venezuela, through Argentina, mm -hmm. and spreading across Latin America. And it's kind of destabilizing, trying to destabilize yeah. regimes in Chile and in Colombia, which are moderately free. So they've never let up on their plan. It was always us just reacting to theirs. Yeah. And until we have more student groups in these countries and we have more like liberty-minded conservatives, we're not going to win these battles because it's just too easy to tell people in countries that have poverty and have really extremely poor conditions mm -hmm. that free healthcare, free college, and all these things that the government's going to do for them and to take care of them are the ultimate solution. So I, our foreign policy really has to be a lot cleaner. Uh, I think our energy policy is one thing, our foreign policy is another thing. I'm like, if we're trying to advance democracy in these countries, we really need to consider like what culture we're we dealing with. Yeah. You know, if they're even susceptible to the ideas. Uh, I think some of the countries that we've worked on in the past, like Japan maybe had like, a, you know, we're more amenable to our ideas, but you know, Afghanistan, you know, tribalism, I'm like, they're not set up to run like democracies. Yeah, so the interesting thing about Afghanistan, it's like two different countries. Mm -hmm. When you go to Kabul towards the capital and towards the urban areas, very different place from the countryside. The rest is pretty tribal. That's pretty interesting. Uh, uh, one interesting fact about uh, religion in, in this context that we're talking about is, you know, in China, Catholicism is growing faster in China than it did in the Roman Empire. Impressive. Mm -hmm. And it's all underground, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, speaking of China, I want to ask you this last question about foreign policy. Mm. I think China's the next big threat. I think they're the next Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. I think they're Cold War point two. What do you think? Uh, yes. Two point Yeah, it is because uh, we ha and what's interesting is we have a mutually symbiotic relationship with them. They're mm -hmm. the world's top producer. We're the top consumer. So destabilizing one destabilizes the other. Mm -hmm. So when we wage these trade wars, it's just you know. It's kind of like playing Russian roulette with yeah. each other, like you know, Definitely. and it's going to be about who blinks first. 
Now, I think China has some inherent problems, uh, the amount of poverty, the amount of people that are being affected. And, and overall, like the way they treat, you know, political dissenters, uh, you know, conscientious, objective people who are being sent off to these labor camps and then being sold for organs. I mean, that's real. Yeah. I mean, that's scary to me. Above all, you know. They're like the Nazis. They are like the modern Nazis. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, history will look back and, and judge us for, like, how we interacted with the Chinese. You know, we were very complacent to take their products because Walmart gave us great prices. But at the same time, you know, people are being persecuted in these countries for having faith-based doctrines, for being political dissenters, for being of a different ethnic background. I mean, all these people in China are being rounded up. And where do we stand on that? I think when the NBA players had to step up and, and say something to, in defense of China, I thought that was the most status thing ever. Yeah, is like, it now LeBron James has run for president? Oh, please, like, yeah. No, it's not happening. No, never. You know, shame on you. I mean, yeah. <sighs> Don't get me started on professional athletes or, you know, the Hollywood yeah. elite. I mean, they're... But this is actually one of my ways I, I can tell if people are, like, serious or not or if they're just full of crap. Is you hear all the time people on the right and the left will be like, man, if I would live in World War II, I would have signed up to fight them Nazis. I, I would do it because mm -hmm. they know they're a good person. It's really easy to say that in hindsight. I just ask them, would you sign up to fight, for China? Would you sign up to fight China? Mm -hmm. Nope. Cause no. it, and this is a broader, a broader American problem. Americans still don't know China's the enemy. Mm. They still don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, the Chinese and the American economy are going to have to separate off at one point. Coronavirus is doing a good job making it happen right now. Yeah. Um, but it's just it's going to do some ripples. And a lot of businesses are going to leave China for coronavirus thing that's going to happen. Mm. But there needs to be... It's going to have to be a president to do it because people follow presidents mm -hmm. uh the president's going to be have to be elected and say china is the enemy they are the new soviet union we got to treat them like such mm -hmm. and, and either people are going to have to rally around that and they're going to take that seriously or they're going to have to be content where they are and that's in the long run that's going to hurt us because china wants to bring the u.s down if americans don't accept that then we will fall China, I have like a, a direct experience with them through my business and the Russians for less, to a lesser extent. When I was in California after I got out of the Navy, I was buying real estate. And one of the things that we would do is we'd go to these real estate auctions and the people that showed up over and over again were Russians and Chinese people with just boatloads of cash. Mm -hmm. They would pay for properties in cash. And you know, this was before I really got politically active, but it made me think, I'm like, they're taking the money that we printed, that we lent, they have our cash and they're coming back here and they're buying our property like a tangible asset this isn't yeah. fiat currency you know and i have a problem with you know this and it's not a very free market idea i don't like the idea of people coming over here necessarily and just buying up our land route from underneath us like that mm -hmm. i mean and i mean that is a real way to like destabilize our economy you know if they can come over here and just plant themselves in our communities, with take our land, they integrate themselves into our universities. Have you seen that? I have seen that. And that to me, that to me is very concerning because the Chinese embassy here in Houston, and they do not take well to any kind of negative publicity. So one of the things that I've been involved in the past year were these Hong Kong protesters supporting them and mm -hmm. trying to kind of well, now that they're seeing what's going on, I'm trying to tell them, like, look, I'm like, what you really need to be talking about is liberty values. That way you can grow this movement, you know, and really cultivate it. But in the process, you get to see, like, the other side of, like, how China responds. 
how the people in China, like Jackie Chan and all these people, became these massive statists yeah. and apologists for China. Because they have to. And they have to, right. But, who, it, but, but some people, some of the artists, you know, they step aside, they stand out, and they denounce China for what it, what it is. And then that's good, good for them. I'm, I'm glad they do that. I think at this point, the way I deal with that is eventually we're going to have to put sanctions on China. I think they're, we do. They're going to come eventually. Uh, maybe because in the end, if, if we want to really mm. stand up to this and stand up to China, because they're going to stand up to us. Mm. We want to stand back. It's, it's going to happen. So the sooner Americans accept it, I think the better it will be. How do you feel about what's going on in the South China Sea? Yeah, we should have our navy there twenty four seven. Yeah. The uh, in fact, just a year ago, there was almost a, a collision with a, a U.S. ship and a Chinese ship, and they they blinked first. Which good, they should blink first. The American navy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's really bad. We should keep our navy there full time. Luckily, the Chinese navy is a joke. They're trying to bu- make it bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're trying to build new aircraft carriers, but they're never going to be able to compete with the. U.S. Navy, mm-hmm. and in order to make sure they don't compete, that's why we need to put on sanctions, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that, we're going to go to another break, and we'll be back after this.